This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey, this is Matt Davis. In this episode of Brain Matters, I sat down to talk with Dr. Rajesh Miranda from Texas A&M University, where he's a professor of neuroscience and experimental therapeutics. Dr. Miranda is very much interested in how events and environmental factors early in development lead to profound changes in adulthood. Specifically, he studies fetal alcohol syndrome. He actively studies the role of neural stem cells in the emergence of some of these symptoms. He is also one of the few people that actually enjoys his commute, so we get into that. Anyways, perk up your cochlea and enjoy the episode. You study fetal alcohol syndrome. Could you please explain what is fetal alcohol syndrome? So it was found uh, probably about 50 years ago so that uh, uh, there was a series of cases in Washington state where uh, children were presenting with mid-face defects. So, uh, for example, very thin upper lips, a flattened, uh, uh, we call it a philtrum, it's, it's a divot uh, just underneath your nose. Um, flattened nose, widespread eyes, things like that, epicanthal folds. These children were all small, and uh, it seemed very strange that the, 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 the same features were replicated in all of these children. The physician at that time, uh, Ken Jones and Smith, uh, uh, realized that they had something that was unique, something that they had not seen before, and they tracked it down in all cases to heavy maternal alcohol consumption, and that was the kind of the formal origin of the description of the syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, that is maternal alcohol uh, consumption during pregnancy could really lead to a very stereotypic uh, set of uh, physical features uh, that could be classified as a syndrome, in fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, in um, a time, people realized that the syndrome was really the extreme end of the continuum that there was it's almost like a iceberg that there was a little bit on the top that you could see but the whole lot of uh, children who were probably fetal alcohol exposed that were undiagnosed uh, but nevertheless suffering from the effects of fetal alcohol exposure and so in time uh, we've come to use the term fetal alcohol spectrum disorders to encompass that spectrum and some of these children may not have any of those characteristic features that Ken Jones and others first described but nevertheless, they would have intellectual disabilities, the problems with learning, processing of numbers, spatial tasks, things like that. And so the consequences of fetal alcohol exposure were heavy. And it, it turns out in the United States, possibly up to about 5% of all children at school age have had some fetal alcohol exposure. The syndrome itself is a tiny fraction, uh, the fetal alcohol syndrome, but the spectrum disorders is huge. Um, and that goes with you know with the data showing that about six uh, percent or so of all women engage in binge alcohol consumption at least in the first trimester of pregnancy. So it's it's kind of a match. In other countries, um, the rates can be really high. In South Africa uh, and in uh, the states of the former Soviet Union, um, in each case because of some historical factors that favored heavy alcohol consumption patterns. In South Africa, in the Cape region. There was a, uh, it's a source of wine production. It's a very, very good quality wines from South Africa. But until recently, 
uh, many of the wine uh, vineyard workers were paid in wine. And so that led to a, um, a kind of a culture of heavy alcohol consumption. Uh, and it affected uh, mainly a population of people that call the Cape Colored population, which were a mixture of uh, um, Asians, you know, some Malays and Indian origin and uh, Chinese and Africans and um, um, maybe even a few Caucasians that had intermarried. Anybody who was not white in the apartheid era was Cape Colored and they were part of this lower socioeconomic class. And so they had extremely heavy rates of alcohol consumption there. But practically every country, that uh, even if they deny it, even even uh, countries that think that they do not have an alcohol problem, they, uh, if you look, you'll find fetal alcohol syndrome, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So what does the syndrome uh, symptoms look like? What, how does it impact quality of life of the person that, um, say, is on the lower end of the spectrum? What is the sort of prognosis for quality of life? Quality of life. In terms of what they look like, one for me, one of the striking features that I saw when I met my first group of fetal alcohol adults is how small they are. And in a room of uh, grown people in the United States, they really come across as really small people. Uh, and so the first thing is that uh, at heart, fetal alcohol exposure results in fetal growth restriction. And that plays out all the way into adulthood. A lot of people focus on the neural effects because those uh, catch your attention, the ability to perform cognitive tasks, impulse control, for example. Uh, people in the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder range will have difficulty with controlling their anger. So if you upset them or something like that. Very simple things like knowing how much interpersonal space is appropriate um, uh, to more complex things like spatial mapping of... of um, their environment, uh, the ability to pay attention, so they find uh, um, it difficult to play, pay attention in class. So uh, at the very severe end, uh, 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 there might be moderate to perhaps even severe uh, uh, mental retardation. That uh, Severe retardation is quite rare, but moderate is, is not so rare in the severe end of the continuum. Uh, but you could have extreme uh, uh, features, such as, for example, when the brain develops, uh, we, our brains are all comprised of two hemispheres, but the hemispheres could merge together to, refer, to cause what is referred to as holoprosencephaly. And a, and a person with holoprosencephaly is going to have very limited capacity to function as an adult. So you have these primary defects that arise, arise out of alcohol, in your, uh, maternal alcohol exposure. But you also have secondary disabilities that come from the interaction of that individual with the rest of the environment and with life. So, for example, that individual's ability to interact with uh, other children at school age is limited because of their impulse control. Uh, their ability to follow the teacher and follow instructions of the teacher is limited. And so that sets them up for secondary disabilities. Uh, and that sets them up for truancy and things like that. If you're not rewarded for going to school, you're going to be truant, right? And so in, in Canadian studies, for example, they found that uh, fetal alcohol-exposed children are often at higher uh, or overrepresented in, in the juvenile justice system populations. And even uh, that plays out into adulthood in adult prison systems and such. And it, they're probably not, they'll never be diagnosed and they will always be subjected to the rough justice of these types of systems that don't really understand how to deal with them. And so you can imagine that 
that early trauma or that early developmental experience actually sets the stage for a lifelong uh, set of experiences. And that's only with respect to the brain. And alcohol has effects on other organs as well. So with respect to the brain, you, you mentioned one of the effects was the sort of merging of these hemispheres. Um, are there other um, sort of primary effects um, on the biology of the brain that are affected? And how do those manifest the symptoms? Sure, sure. So part of the key to understanding how alcohol acts on the brain is to recognize that neural development is a set of one-off events, one-time only events that will never happen again. And so the effect of alcohol depends on the stage of development at which the fetus is exposed. So you can imagine that if a mother is binging, but occasionally uh, the the mother might be, or the fetus might be okay for some developmental periods, but then re-exposed for other developmental periods. So this holoprosencephaly that I described is really a first trimester, early first trimester programming event where the brain has to come together as these, in, in fact, the whole face basically comes together in a very complex uh, structure, almost like uh, uh, leaves of a, of a uh, if you can imagine, uh, or the petals of a flower closing up again. It's, it's, uh, so that spatial uh, and temporal alignment has to be just precise to create a face. Um, later on, you have uh, the free future brain and spinal cord is formed of a sheet of cells that have to enfold uh, on themselves and form a tube. So if it happens that the mother consumes alcohol during that time period, you might have failure of neural tube closure and so things like spina bifida and neural tube defects. After that, you have the, the tube laid out and stem cells of the tube ready to form the neurons first. Uh, and that will be mid first trimester through the second trimester and then the later the glial cells. And so you can imagine that alcohol exposure during that mid first trimester through the second trimester will affect uh, the formation of neurons. Uh, basically, the, and that's what my lab focuses on, the capacity of stem cells to generate new neurons that is influenced by alcohol. These neurons are born in a germinal region called the ventricular zone, but have to migrate away quite some distance to their final regions. And so alcohol exposure during that migration phase can lead to migration defects. You can have over or under migration defects. People in the, uh, refer to these defects as heterotopias. These would be aggregations of neurons that don't belong in a certain place. They've either over or under migrated and have nobody to talk to, so they talk to each other. And that, when they've talked to each other, they can form a kind of a reverberating circuit that can be uh, uh, seizure generating. So it sets up susceptibility for infant seizures. Later on in the third trimester, as these neurons have started to differentiate, uh, uh, alcohol is known to be able to kill the neurons. So you might actually have apoptosis mechanisms. So there's a, you can, there's a lot of specificities that are dependent on uh, developmental stage. How did you become interested in studying fetal alcohol syndrome? I am very interested in a field called uh, developmental origins of adult disease. And the notion that something that happens very, very far back in time can set the stage for the rest of the life of an organism. And how that person, how that uh, person will form not only as an infant and an adolescent, but as a young adult, um, and even to middle age and aging. So. Um, as a graduate student, I actually looked into this and did some long-term studies where I was able to observe effects of, it's not alcohol exposure, but other drugs that played out all the way to, uh, in animal models to 24 months of age, which is really a long time in an animal model. 
And um, so I'm very impressed with this idea that the, the process of development will influence the rest of the life of an organism. And that's why I became interested in fetal alcohol, because it seemed like something that is so common, needs work, needs something to be done about it. And here I am. Could you talk about some of the specific discoveries that you've made, elucidating the processes that mediate the effects? What, what are the players on, on the cellular level? It was quite by chance that I started focusing on neural stem cells as a as a particular target of alcohol because at that time nobody else was. Uh, it came out of a discussion where, uh, you know, I was talking with somebody and they said, "Well, it's very clear that alcohol is toxic and kills cells." And then my response to them was, "What if the cells had never been born in the first place?" And that kind of started me on this process. So I think one of my contributions is to focus attention on that neurogenic window and it's it's both uh, uh, it, it, it was a needed focus of attention because people hadn't been really focusing on that they'd been focusing on the third trimester when the neurons are developed but it is also I think a source of hope that uh, uh, for the first time allows us to think about how we might intervene and uh, for me that is really the big deal is I do not believe that fetal alcohol is preventable because of the confluence of uh, sociological uh, factors like uh, uh, unplanned pregnancies in the United States, the high rates of binge drinking in the populations of uh, people that might get pregnant. Uh, and so uh, for me, the, the con my contribution, I think, is how do we think about that early period in a way that allows us to fix things? I'm interested in fixing things, not just describing things. So what are what are some of the possible so one venues? So uh, well, yeah. one of the possible venues, and this is where it might get a little bit more arcane and complex. One of the routes to fixing things may be not in the genes that encode the proteins that regulate cell function, but in what used to be viewed as the junk in between those genes, the chromosome uh, chromosome regions in between those genes that were known to create RNA transcripts but those RNA transcripts were thought to be uh, the kind of a debris of cellular function. So this is sort uh, of where we break from the central dogma of biology, right? Right. So yes. And so uh, I grew up with the central dogma of biology, and it's a very powerful and seductive do dogma, very simple, right? It, DNA gives rise to RNA, which gives rise to proteins. And the only function of RNA is to make proteins. And after that, their RNA is useless. And that applies to only between... 2 to 8% of all of the RNA transcripts that are made by a cell. And the rest, you're talking about the vast majority of RNA transcripts are never made into proteins. And so for, for decades we knew this, and we yet ignored it and we thought it was junk. And now it turns out that these we call these non-coding RNAs can be uh, varied in size. Some of them are enormous, kilobases, tens of kilobases. Some of them might even be in the megabase range. And some of them are really small, um, and we call them micro microRNAs, and so in the 17 to 25 nucleotide in length. Um, and so uh, uh, these um, non-coding RNAs, non-protein coding RNAs, have evolved in evolutionary timescales, so we're talking millions of years, to regulate networks of protein coding RNAs oftentimes. And in many ways, they can do all of the things that proteins can do. Uh, and they've probably emerged earlier than proteins did in, in, uh, in terms of life. And so we have 
in these molecules an idea of how we can develop therapies that match what nature itself has done. Nature has created a scheme where a large networks of genes that control, say, the, 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 uh, the movement of a stem cell into a mature neuron. This large network of protein-coding genes is controlled already by a group of these non-coding RNAs. And so we have to find out these, what these non-coding RNAs are. It's like, for example, I work with microRNAs, and we could potentially manipulate these to create a very complex outcome. We could not, say, for example, introduce 200 proteins into a cell and hope that we could repair a brain disease. But we might be able to introduce four or five microRNAs, and nature has provided the route to make the rest of it happen. And that's kind of the holy grail for uh, focusing on these non-coding RNAs and then using them as therapeutics. Uh, and the other nice thing about them is that you can look across evolution and see what changes have occurred to these RNA molecules and make changes that have never happened, that nature has never thought about. So you could create drugs out of these RNAs that have never existed in nature. You could concatenate uh, one RNA from that served part of you know, one function with another RNA that served another function and create an entirely new drug that could influence development in new ways. So for the first time, you, 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 I can see how you can kind of, in a simple way, com control complexity. When you think about these networks of non-coding RNAs that are controlling proteins and all of these proteins and all of the genes that support these and all the duplications and multiplications, of everything um, is it sort of awe-inspiring just a cell you know and all the components that make it go yeah and how, how does that resonate with you when you think about that for me it, it, it it's an incredible kind of window into our creation in a sense and you know whatever uh, whatever route that you come to understand creation the idea that nature is so immensely complex and has created uh, avenues to allow for adaptation. So I think nature is all about adaptation. And that is an amazing process. I, I really think we're just touching the surface. And every time we think we have a good understanding, you know, people that define the codon structure thought they had a good understanding. And it's turned out that they were scratching the surface. And I think similarly, we're just scratching the surface. And we have generations of uh, and generations of biologists that can be employed. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to figure it out anytime soon, huh? That's right. And we <laughs> um, should be humble about that, I think. I had a lingering question about um, uh, alcohol's effect on uh, neural stem cells. What about in the context of adult neurogenesis? Do you have any thoughts on yes. um, how it may be, you know, alcohol exposure as an adult may have impact that? Right, right. So that is the other issue, right? Uh, so the, uh, we, di we didn't think until, until fairly recently that there was some... Uh, any adult neurogenesis. In fact, when I was in graduate school, the, the dominant dogma was that uh, the adult had no neurogenic capacity, and then all of the data started coming out. And so uh, the adult neurogenesis uh, is influenced by alcohol exposure, so that is likely to be a big player in uh, a loss of cognitive capacity in the adult if you influence uh, the neurogenesis in the hippocampus, for example. But the linkage is not as good as we I mean, our understanding is not uh, as good as we would wish. And the linkage between neurogenesis and cognitive capacity is not tight. And so uh, I don't know how that is going to play out, but I do think that is an important area uh, to uh, 
conduct research on. Is there sort of a technology on the horizon that you see um, that can maybe impact your research in the next five to ten years or so? There's, it, I mean, we live in a tremendously uh, amazing time. And so there are a lot of enabling technologies, and I, I, I try to point some of them out. One of them is high-resolution rapid imaging. Uh, and so uh, I am a great uh, fan of ultrasound-based uh, imaging systems because I think uh, ultrasounds have inherent, you know, a kind of a history of being small, portable. You could take an ultrasound machine, dump it into the back of an SUV, and take it out into the field. You know, so in the colonias of uh, Texas, for example, where the healthcare is hard to find, and and do diagnosis there, you could not do that easily for an, a magnetic resonance imaging machine. You typically would have to bring the patient to the machine, and so I think that's one enabling thing. I'm seeing immense improvement in the resolution of ultrasound, the marrying of ultrasound with laser Doppler. So now you can get down to the single cell level even using uh, uh, nano crystals like you know things uh, shapes of uh, gold and things like that track individual cells in a whole organism right now we're doing it for the mouse but if we solve issues like for example um, uh, you know because uh, uh, heating tissues for example and potentially damaging tissues with high resolution ultrasound then I can see this coming into the human so that's one enabling technology the other enabling technology frankly is the ability to to deliver genes in a targeted way, cell type specific way, under complete control. So a lot of these uh, um, inducible viral technologies are, are tremendously enabling. The ability to deliver genes that allow light control, uh, you know, exogenous control of brain activity. So by using uh, bacterial, you know, uh, uh, light channels. Uh, and and uh, so that now you can express this rhodopsin, uh, you know, this light channel, in a very specific neuron under specific control, and then shine a light and shut off the neural activity or turn it on, and that you know, decrease the desire for that next drink of alcohol. So you can imagine that a, a person could carry a little trigger in their own, you know, uh, hand. Oh, I want to stop by the bar, give myself a little shot. Oh no, I don't need to do that anymore. Or, you know, for Parkinson's or movement disorders of any kind or sleep disorder, I mean, you know, depression. So all of these, uh, those at least two enabling technologies that for me I see is, is incredibly valuable. What are some of the things that you enjoy the most about being a scientist? I enjoy uh, meeting young people who always ask questions and I have to think all the time. So... <laughs> So it's, it is one of the few um, endeavors in life where things are always going to be uncertain and where you can be asked the darndest question and it might be a new insight into something. So for me, this is the, this is the most fun is interacting with creative people. That, yeah. I don't know if that's kind of what you want to hear. No, but that's it's perfect. Uh, were, were your parents academics or... or... Um, sort of what was your what was your background? Um, my, my mother was a professor at uh, Mumbai University, Mumbai University, mm -hmm. um, in social work. She was uh, very involved with establishing rural health clinics and things like that in rural India. My dad was an engineer uh, in a, a large uh, iron and steel company, designing bridges and things like that. Yeah, so pretty pretty heavy academic background. Or, yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
are you able to have a hobbies or interests outside of neuro? Uh, your research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sometimes hard, but one of my big uh, hobbies and interests is bicycling. And I, I love uh, riding bicycles, fixing bicycles, repairing bicycles. Neighbors come and give me bicycles to repair, and I do that. So that's kind of my hobby. Do you do like a long long rides or kind of uh, medium rides around town? So I, I'm very much taken up with the idea of the bicycle as a... As a way of uh, uh, commuting as freeing people freeing people from the need to use cars to go places so i'm i'm a great fan of the bicycle as a means to get to some place rather than as going some place as a means to bicycle uh and so um i i love to uh see uh, so commuting is something that i enjoy i i that's not something a lot of people can say <laughs> Um, they have they have decent bike infrastructure in College Station. Uh, no, okay. but uh, but I I, have, <laughs> I behave like a car. Yeah, and I take a lane and uh, and do everything that cars do. Yeah. stop at uh, stop signs very obviously. Yeah, stop at lights. Big side my turns. And in terms of interest in transportation, I noticed that you have the Vibram five finger or some <laughs> yes. five finger type gloves. Yeah. Uh, how does that impact your life? I suppose just wearing uh, those around. Well, in, in many ways. It, first of all, these are the most comfortable shoes yeah. I've ever had the opportunity to wear. I can't imagine going back. These are my formals, by the way. These are leather. So oh, wow. They so, classify as yeah. formals. I can wear them with suits, and I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, formal functions. But uh, uh, it's incredible to always have a contact with the ground. And so you almost develop a kind of a tactile sense of the ground. So when you step on a stone, for example, you know right away... And you adapt to it, so you you're con- continuously adapting to your environment by feeling it, and I love that part of it. Uh, the other thing is, you know, people think I'm crazy, and so you know, the <laughs> my uh, faculty colleagues. <laughs> um, do you have any other things that you're you're interested in, or that you want people to know? Yeah, I think the the message that I feel very passionate about something that I've talked about earlier that pay attention to development, so invest. You're, you're better off economically, socially, and health-wise investing in good maternal fetal health. You're better off investing in infant health. You're better off investing in child health. Whole better off than, a whole lot better off than investing in keeping somebody who is suffering from diabetes and you know all the costs associated with uh, uh, things that develop over a lifetime. Most of our diseases are, are preventable, and if we did prevention early healthcare costs would be much less and uh, so that's that's something that I feel very passionate about that's part of the reason why I commute as well as a bicyclist is uh, it helps my personal healthcare great I think that's a good note to go out on thank you very much you're very welcome thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters we'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.